0: Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, I'm pleased to welcome John Sinopoli to Table Talk. John is the executive chef and co-owner of the Ascari Hospitality Group. Under that umbrella, John operates Ascari Enoteca, Gare de l'Est Brasserie, and he's also the owner of High Low Bar in Toronto. And if that's not enough to keep him infinitely busy, John is also the co-founder of Save Hospitality, an advocacy group that surfaced just after the pandemic started back in March of this year. Well, good afternoon, John, and welcome to Table Talk.
1: Good afternoon, Rosanna. Great to be here. Thanks.
0: Thank you. I know you must be very busy with a lot of meetings and a lot of pivoting going on these days. So I really appreciate you coming um, to to spend some time with us today. I thought we'd start off by um, maybe just giving our listeners a little bit of an overview of what your company is all about. And, you know, we mentioned some of the brands in that opening Um, If you could tell us a little bit about that and your partnership um, group, that would be a great way to lead into uh, the rest of the questions.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we are uh, at the core a restaurant company. We um, own three restaurants, one uh, mostly in the East End and Leslieville in Toronto. And we opened a new flagship of Ascari on King West at Portland just last year. So uh, we also own, as you mentioned, a bar in Riverside at Queen and Broadview. And we also have uh, an events and catering company that kind of is under the whole umbrella of all of it. So it's about five entities in in total. And we um, do keep ourselves busy on the regular doing that. i uh, been business partners with my partner, Eric Joyal, um, since 2005. So about 15 years. And uh, we also have a new partner who's our director of operations with Hill Hoke. So the three of us together uh, oversee the operations of uh, of what we do on the day-to-day.
0: Wonderful. Sounds like there's a lot on your plate for sure. Over the last eight months as we've kind of navigated this very unusual time with COVID, um, life has changed for everybody. What has the lockdown been like for you? And recognizing that we've been through various phases of this lockdown over the last eight months from total to partial and then back and forth again, what's it been like for you personally? Um, and, and then obviously for your company.
1: Yeah. I mean, personally, it has different challenges depending on whether daycares and schools are open. So my partner, my, my life partner, and I have a, a, a little one together who's two and a half. And so when he, um, is not able to be in daycare or preschool, um, life is an immense challenge for us because my partner works from home. She does freelance design work. And so, uh, her office is the house and that becomes a massive challenge if, if uh, our little guy can't get to school. So, and that's, I'm sure, a shared experience of millions. Uh, and I think everyone understands that. The current lockdown, thankfully, has not closed daycares and schools. Um, so we're able to get up in the morning, do our routine, and get to work. Uh, and business wise, I think that um, the challenge has been the uh, ever changing parameters, the ever changing rules. Um, I think the the biggest challenge of that has been to like where do businesses and I'll speak to restaurants sp- specifically like decide to spend their money and where do you invest in like do you invest like there's a lot of restaurants that invested in a lot of plexiglass to separate people in their restaurants and that's money going unused at the moment and money frankly that we don't have so um, and then you know a lot of us invested in patios for the summer and a lot of us invested in winterization of those patios which again is a moot point at the moment with the current lockdown. So uh, we've been saying to government from the beginning in March, as crucial as your support programs are, it's equally crucial that you telegraph to us what you're going to do and not make decisions last minute and not make them willy-nilly and that you, you basically make a plan and stick to it so that we have a financial landscape with which we know we're working. Otherwise, we're throwing good money after bad over and over again.
0: Yeah, that's got to be one of the most frustrating things for restaurant owners to have to make all these pivots almost on a on a daily basis and then spend all that money only to be told now you can't use it. I know in September, yep. people yep. were, you know, starting to winterize their patios and heat lamps and all of that. And now, of course, patio dining has been changed again. So I feel for you. It's, it's, it's got to be really, really tough. Um were the immediate impacts, I mean, did you have to lay off a lot of staff um, in the early days? And what did that do to your operation? I mean, I don't know how many staff you normally have, but what did it look like after the layoffs?
1: Yeah, so March 15th, uh, we laid off 97 employees. That was our 97? Staff. Yes. Wow. So our, our entire staff. <clears throat> we basically had no operation. We weren't set up for takeout and delivery. It was not uh, part of our business model. At the time, and so uh, we basically just shut it down. Told everyone to get on the EI as quickly as possible, and then we began our government advocacy right away. Um, I think that uh, now uh, we have a number of people back. We, pro- I mean, I haven't counted to be honest, but if I were to guess, we probably have 30, 40 people back on payroll, maybe a few more, depending on the week. Um, we tend to we're doing our best to stay connected to as many of our employees as possible so that when things normalize, we have a team to, to springboard with Um, you know, and even part-time hourly employees who used to be full-time we're bringing back like pack boxes for deliveries or just do something um, that is uh, uh, useful and meaningful and keep them in the house one or two days a week so that we keep those relationships strong. Um, But yeah, it's been a massive, Challenge, uh, and you know we end up losing a lot of really talented employees who just left the city, or couldn't afford their apartment anymore, or decided to change, make a career change based on the current conditions. And you can't fault anyone for those decisions in a time like this.
0: No, very difficult for sure. Um, you mentioned that in the early days of those of the lockdown, you really didn't pivot to takeout because that wasn't part of your model. Did you end up? pivoting to it later on when yes. you realized that it was going to be a lot longer than you thought?
1: Yes, yes. By the time summer hit, we had shifted to um, <clears throat> take out in, uh, at all of our locations. I mean, we always did takeout, but to actually sign on to the apps and do the delivery portion and all that as well. Um, in fact, at Ascari, King Street, our flagship, we also d- developed a pizza program. We had never made pizza in our 15-year history, and we had a couple people on our team with some great experience, so we created a pizza program for the Ubers and Dashes and Skip the Dishes of the World, um, so that we could have a product that made sense, both financially and for uh, familiarity, because our Background is handmade pasta and handmade pasta, high-end handmade pasta doesn't travel very well. So we had to really create a menu that traveled well. Um, and we've been doing that at all three of our locations, like finessing the menu to be more deliverable and, and more hearty, things that stay hot, whether it's on a cold patio when you can open those or just putting it in a box and having it travel to someone's home, that it arrives in as in best condition as possible. So it's
0: great that you were able to pivot to that pizza program. Did you find that, you know, going the takeout route and delivery actually worked out well for you, and that you were you happy with with the results of that program and, and what that meant for the operation?
1: Um, yeah, it 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 helps. It's not significant. So what, when you the problem with the way these I shouldn't say the problem the reality of the way these delivery apps work is that. The longer you're on it and the more sales you've done, the higher up in in the algorithm you are. So if you're new to the game, you have to spend time to build that business. And at a time when we need the business right away, it's been a challenge. Uh, But um, we found that the response to our takeout um, delivery program in the neighborhood, like in Leslieville, which is like a much more... um, you know, community oriented Mm -hmm. location. We've been there a long time, like, uh, like 10 plus years in that neighborhood. Uh, Everyone that we have an immense amount of neighborhood support, that community has really rallied around us and supported us with great sales and great takeout, great pickup sales, great bottle shop sales. In our West End location, where we're much newer, where we're just over a year in existence, and it's a a much more crowded marketplace and less community focused, Mm -hmm. a lot of condo towers and younger people, um, we found that it's been more of a challenge to try to build those build that kind of sales.
0: And, and you mentioned Uber and DoorDash, I guess, earlier. Uh, you ended up using the third-party delivery apps or you, you didn't attempt to do delivery on your own, I suppose?
1: Uh, no. So we do delivery on our own for our uh, online store. So, we have an online store that we sell all of our meal kits and frozen items and prepared foods and pantry items on there. Uh, and we also sell mainly a lot of wine and beer as well, with, along with that food. Um, we, we, we deliver that ourselves. But for ready made meals, no, that's not economically feasible to deliver it yourself.
0: Right, and of course, then you're dealing with high delivery costs, uh, you know with the thirty percent commissions, and yes. I know the industry's been up in arms over the last few months with uh, with the delivery apps and 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 you know what they charge. Um, that's got to take a big cut out of your your money, obviously.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, there's a couple ways to look at that. I mean for, for us, I mean, what most people do is they just raise their prices on those platforms so that it covers a portion of the fees. Um, because, and then, you know, ends up being the consumer who pays a lot of money to have your food delivered to their home. And, you know, those apps are, were developed not as a primary income source for restaurants, but as a supplemental income source for restaurants. And I'm not here to, to defend them, but I do understand that their own challenges with the business model. I don't think that those apps and those companies like Uber Eats, whatever, I don't think they make money unless they charge those fees. I don't think it's like a gouging on their part. I don't even think they make, like, I don't think Uber Eats has ever shown a profit. I, I think that they their their business model is flawed as well. And they rely, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the, you know, without those exorbitant fees, I don't think they make any money. So uh, their business, their, they were never designed to be a sole Uh, revenue stream for a restaurant. They were designed to be an auxiliary revenue stream for a restaurant. Incremental. Yeah, incremental. So if if that's the case, then restaurants already paying its bills and it's just doing some extra dollars. Everybody now is like, that's the only dollars a lot of them are doing. Um, So they are are up in arms about the fees and I do think they're very high. Um, I think that they also don't spread the money around to the drivers well enough and all that kind of jazz. But I think that, um, you know, I'm not here to comment on like the Uber business model. I think that if you use it, you know, it's, you know, it's the devil, you know, you play with it. They have a massive marketing reach that is very useful to a lot of restaurants. Um, And uh, the people that complain about it are tend to be the people whose price points are kind of, are lower already. And they don't make a lot of margin. Their own business model is challenged. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand their point of view as well, because I think that, um, they the delivery market preys on the low uh, 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 focuses on the lower price point to begin with, and those business models have less margin to share. So it is a massive challenge. I don't know what the solution is because if you just tell Uber you got to lower your fees to ten or fifteen percent, I think they'll be out of business tomorrow.
0: Right. Yeah, and theirs are a little higher than some of the others who are maybe at around twenty. But uh, but I hear you on the model, you know. Yeah, and there's some
1: smaller local guys who deliver for like ten percent the mm-hmm. problem is there's zero market like you're not you're not reaching any customers you're just right delivering to customers who know you exist already and if you if that was your if that's your strength then great but most places need when people open an app at home to say oh i want dinner tonight and they open it up they don't think about where they want to go they, they open an app and they browse sure and,
0: and no that's that makes the reality sense. So, so John, in the early days of this pandemic, the government stepped up with with some support measures. Um, some of them were praised in the beginning because, you know, I think everybody was so was struggling so much they just wanted, you know, any kind of help. Um, some rent measures and the obviously the employee employee subsidy. As a company, were you able to take advantage of, of all of that support? And and how would you define that support that the government provided? Was it was it great, good, fair, terrible? How would you rate it?
1: Yeah, so I, I prefer to rate the support program by program. Um, I think that the government's support for individuals, especially the, our, our employees who got laid off, I think was very strong. and They should get like an A for that. It was rolled out very quickly without discrimination. Everybody mm-hmm. got their $2,000 a month serve. Everybody could pay their rent and buy some groceries. That was crucial. I thought, thank to society, and that there wasn't a complete economic collapse in the first lockdown. Um, then when it comes to support for small business, um, I think that the initial iteration of the wage subsidy was a big success. Um, when it finally came and it was very late, it was two, three months late, other countries in the G7 and around the world in the G20 implemented it about 60 days sooner than our government did. Um, our government has moved at a snail's pace with these programs, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, that are, The business support programs have moved at a snail's pace. The private citizen individual support programs have moved at lightning speed. So clearly they show they know how to move at lightning sn- speed. They just choose to move at that speed for voters rather than businesses. Um, and then you know, the, the subsidy was great. And then they rejigged it over the summer. And now it's not so great. Um, now that we really need more wage subsidy, Mm -hmm. we're getting less. So in the summer, when we, when our patios were open, we all had revenue coming in. The subsidy was richer than it is now when we have next to no revenue coming in. For me, that makes no sense whatsoever. It shows a complete lack of foresight Mm -hmm. and it just shows that they don't actually pay attention to how our businesses work when our, when and how our money comes in. And they just show no effort in understanding our business model. Um, And then uh, the rent subsidy program which was even later than the wage subsidy yeah. program ended up being a complete disaster because they decided to run it through um the the, the C. landlords see yeah and that ended up having to go through landlords and then landlords had to volunteer because in order to get the provinces on board who are responsible for rent uh laws it was like herding kittens and I don't blame the federal government for that. I just think they chose the wrong mechanism uh, because they, they chose speed over, over accuracy in that one, except their speed was four months late. Um, and then everyone waited and then all of a sudden you were just lucky if you had a landlord that played along. And if you didn't, you're just screwed and shit out of luck. So um, I think that uh, the new rent subsidy had a ton more promise Mm -hmm. that it was going to be run through tenants. All tenants will qualify now. But now what they've done is they've decided to claim that they're giving us a 65% rent subsidy with a 25% top if you're locked down by a local municipal health authority. The problem is the way they decide on the calculator of of reduced um, uh, how much your revenue is reduced is this very complicated calculator Mm -hmm. that also takes into a portion of sales from the previous three months. So I'm not sure what landlord negotiated their pre-COVID lease on COVID, on COVID rents, but I, don't, I haven't met one yet. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm uh, you know, just shocked at the fact that they could just not keep it simple and say, your rent subsidy will be determined based on your sales year over year from a previous month in 2020 to a previous mm-hmm. month, 2019. Um, the fact that they did this very complicated calculator was a way for them to say they're giving a 65% subsidy if you're down 70% in sales, but really the way they calculate that 70% drop in sales, you need a degree in pure math to figure it out. Yeah, it's and pretty it crazy. Is, it's pretty crazy. And, it's, and it ends up not being in favor of small business. It ends up and it just, it's just puts a way more- for them to spend less
0: it puts more emphasis on the owner operator to have to do all this work where you already have so much on your plate right now through this pandemic.
1: Anyway, a hundred percent. And I'll, yeah. I'll tell you this, you know, I've had a couple friends call me already after entering their numbers and uh, they are down 80% in sales and they're only getting a total of six sixty 60% in wage subsidy. Um, so that for me is outrageous because I don't know where you come up with 35-40% of your rent when you're down 60% in sales.
0: Um, So John were you able to take advantage of any of the the loans that the the government actually introduced? I know in the beginning they had a $40,000 loan and then it changed a little bit down the road but uh, were you able to do any of that?
1: Yeah, so we did take out um, those, they're called the SEBA loans, the <clears throat> emergency, uh, I think it was a benefit or something. Uh, the, that, was, um, that was the kind of structure we were hoping for where we would get some forgivable loans and be able to uh, you know, show bills and, and paying suppliers and all kinds of uh, expenses we had and have a, a lot of that forgiven. The problem was that they basically gave us about 10% of what was needed to, in terms of cash, to reopen. Yeah. And so, yes, are we grateful for a $40,000 loan where where $10,000 of it is forgivable? Sure. Um, Does that move the needle? No, uh, it doesn't. And we were very clear to that. Like, unless you're a very small place that just doesn't move the needle at all, we have, um, you know, we, many, many places in our coalition uh, have. Rents that exceed that number every month, um, and uh, you know they didn't uh, um, announce an extension to that of another twenty thousand dollars of loan, of, of which ten thousand dollars is also forgivable. So in total, it'll be sixty thousand uh, dollars, twenty thousand of which is forgivable. So you know it's not a kick in the teeth to get twenty thousand dollars for free and to have forty thousand dollars of loan interest free for a, a year and a half. That's great. Um, it's just not enough, and you know, in our discussions with government in March, we were very clear that you know we need cash flow. You know, I don't. Everyone got re. Uh, I shouldn't say that. A lot of people got reopened, and I don't know how, but I do know restaurateurs who took new mortgages on their homes, who secured loans with their own property and with their businesses, and who just like filled up their credit card, uh, like in the tens of thousands credible. of dollars to build patios, buy heaters, like buy more inventory, pay staff to get open because opening a restaurant, as most people can imagine, is not like turning on the light switch in a retail store. It's buying product, it's bringing staff back, it's like prep, training, um, you know, like uh, inventory, cleaning, like services, it's it's an immense amount of, it's a huge operation. And so, uh, you know, we needed more than 60K, uh, to be honest, each. Um, You know, our our argument was that we needed somewhere in the neighborhood to pay our, to pay everything, like to pay our rent, to pay our wages, to pay during the lockdown. We needed about um, uh, 10% of our last year's sales. Um, And they gave us, they gave us about half a percent to 1%. So uh, that's the challenge. But yes, we did, we did take advantage of them. And then the government's answer was, look at the huge uptake in this loan. What a successful program we have like, you know, $40 billion in loans. We had all these businesses, not 40 billion. It was like, I don't know. I forget the amount of money it was. It was, was. it was insignificant, but we have hundreds and thousands of businesses taking out these loans. And my analogy to that was, well, sure, if you give someone who's starving a sandwich, they're going to take it. But what they really need is a meal program for the week. Right. And you gave them a sandwich. And then you said, wow, look how great I am. I gave everybody a sandwich and then they're starving again the next day. It's so, a great analogy. So, yeah, I, I think that, of course, people are going to take a sandwich if they're starving. That's not a amount. Ma- that's not a measure of success, um, and I, I think that, that that's you know part of the government's problem is that they don't like to admit the shortcomings of their program. If you don't admit the shortcomings, you can't make improvements. Right, and uh, they would rather pat themselves on the back because in politics, that's what you do.
0: So having said all that, and and you made a great analogy. As I said. Um, In March, after all this happened, you and and I guess a co-founder launched a a group called Save Hospitality. Um, Obviously, the frustration was a lot of the impetus for this group. um, But how did that come to to fruition? And what kind of impact have you felt that you've made with this group now?
1: Yeah. So that group started, um, the night I laid off 97 employees. And <laughs> it just so happened that my business partner 15 years was on March break vacation with his family, like struggling to get back. He was like battling to get back for a week. And it was of course a challenge for everybody. And he, he did it. And then, um, but it was a, it was a massive challenge and we, we, you know, sat around a table and commiserated about like all the people we had spent hiring over 10 years and building a team and that, We're hoping that they all come back very soon. Um, And I was, you know, understandably like as many restaurateurs were both like emotionally and intellectually very affected by the whole scenario. And so I said, I reached out to a few friends of mine in a couple of chat groups that I had gone to high school with people who had worked in government for many years I said, like, guys, what do we do here? Like, uh, do government have, are they going to help us? They have the answer. And the response I got from someone who was very close with governments and the federal and provincial level was they are at a complete loss. They do not know what to do. They are looking for guidance and advice from business and small business to how to help, which I thought was very encouraging. And he said, you know, the bold will dictate the terms. Get out there, write something down, and I'll put it in the desk of the people that matter. Don't worry. So I said, great. So I started writing a letter and then I included my business partner. And then we started shopping that letter to other restaurateurs. Hey, what do you think of these ideas? These are kind of lists of not demands, but like things we think that the government needs to do to ensure our survival and to ensure the survival of our industry. Cause it was at an obvious moment of crisis and uh, it just grew and grew and grew until we had, we so many people were signed on we're like well we got to put everyone's logo and the number of employees they have down on here too and then it became this very effective rallying point and so between myself and eric and um andrew oliver from oliver bonaccini mm-hmm. as well as like dyson forbes from forbes wild foods and rob fairly uh, like an industry uh, service provider these are people that all contributed greatly to it and that really um Uh, put their time and energy into something for many, many months. Like We basically became our full-time job as volunteers. And then slowly as we had to eventually reopen, it couldn't be our full-time job anymore, but we really tried to um, uh, continue to work with government. And over the summer, it slowed down a bit because we just didn't have the energy and the time. And now we brought on a few new volunteers and paid people to help out. Um, to help move these issues forward, and uh, it continues to be a challenge. So
0: are you happy with the results? I mean, it sounds like obviously it's a very grassroots movement, and it seems like you've got the industry really you know, riled up behind you to support you, which is great. Have you felt that it's made a dent in where you want to go? You, you wanted to give them a roadmap of solutions, of things that can be done to help the industry. Mm-hmm. Have they listened?
1: Uh, yes and no. Um, I, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Yes, 100% they have listened. Uh, um, we ha- were able to achieve, I think, an incredible amount of engagement with government in a short amount of time for people who are not professional lobbyists. We are small business owners, restaurateurs, and we um, were able through hard work and good messaging, as well as um, some connections, uh, able to like inject ourselves into the conversation and be effective that way. Um, Did they act on what they heard is another question. Uh, That answer is mixed, obviously. I think, you know, I was grading programs earlier where I think like, you know, the wage subsidy originally got like a B plus and now it's probably down to like a C and the rent subsidy started like at a D and now it's probably up to like a B. Um, And then the SEBA loan that you asked about, like that's the third federal support program that was put in place. That's probably like a, a, a nice effort, but, you know, you, you're not there yet kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, so we think that there could have been so much more done to help us. And it's that wasn't all about just spending money. It was also mm-hmm. about where to spend that money and how to spend it. You know, the federal wage subsidy paid Rogers Communications $25 million last summer. That's right. Why, like when they tell us that they don't have the money to help us, yet that program goes out. Because for them, it was really about ease of execution and well, how do we get the most out to the most people? And and when the, we, they were talking about the rent subsidy, their biggest thing was, we have to make sure there's no fraud. We to make sure that we're not giving money to people who don't need it. Right. Yet they then turn around and give $25 million to Rogers. Yeah, It just shows you that a creating these programs and rolling them out so quickly is an immense challenge. And we have to be forgiving to government in some regard in terms of that execution. But what we can't forgive is their approach to, um, you know, I was on a call with government last week. and This will be a better way to explain my critique of this particular approach, you know, and we were talking about creating a new program that would help Restaurants pay their suppliers because we owe our suppliers a lot of money. Our suppliers are about to go bankrupt too. We want to support them as much as possible. We need money to help pay those old bills. And they were saying, "Well, we can't do that. You know, we have to be careful about who we give money to, and like, what if someone collects this money and they don't really need it?" And I said, "If you, if if you are concerned in this pandemic with this crisis about people taking money who don't need it, no one's ever going to get the help they need." I That's said, right. "You you." You cannot um, preside over the demolition of an entire industry, that is hospitality, and then claim that the reason you presided over that demolition is because you wanted to make sure that you didn't pay someone who shouldn't have got it. I said, I said it, it, that collateral damage, if you want to call it, of, of a few bad actors getting money they don't deserve is a fair price to pay for everyone who actually needs it getting the money. And, and I think that the government needs to change their tack on that. Their initial response is to be like, Oh, we have to make sure nobody gets this. who doesn't deserve it. They don't take that stance when it comes to large corporations. I Mm -hmm. don't know why they take that stance when it comes to small business. I think it stems from the fact that they still treat small business like kindergarten children. They think that we're, they think that we're unsophisticated, uneducated, um, people who, um, you know, really, are blue collar and work, and just don't understand the the comings and goings of finance and going. When the actually the reverse is true, we had to spend months explaining our business model and how it works to government because they had no clue how we do business. They had no clue how many suppliers we use, how our terms exist, how our loan mechanisms work, how right. our leases are structured. We're actually like small business owners are way more sophisticated than many, many corporate actors in this country, because we actually have to know both the nitty gritty and the big picture. And we are not we're more of a jack of all trades when it comes to business and business understanding.
0: Well, I think everything you're saying really speaks, obviously, to a lack of understanding on the part of government and maybe not trying to get as educated as they need to be um, in in order to give the kinds of uh, support that they can give. But in in the last few days in Ontario, um, you know, we've gone through another lockdown now where, you know, in in dining, um, restaurant dining is now no longer allowed, nor is patio dining. And over the last few days, there's been obviously some cases of operators who are now saying, well, I don't care what the government is saying, I'm going to open regardless. So it's created a whole other situation that's Mm -hmm. going on right now. It speaks to the frustration that's out there. But how... How can the industry better educate the government? Or what does, you know, what do we need to do to get to that next stage? Because it's been a roller coaster ride for operators. It That's changes a great, on a daily basis. Yeah, We're spending money totally. to, to build things that then are no longer needed. What can we do as an industry?
1: It's, it's a great question. And I'll tell you my response to that is that the restaurant and hospitality industry that includes hotels and tourism and all that really deserves its own minister and we don't have it. And when I brought this up to government, they're like, oh, well, you know, like, you know, that's a big ask and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, let me explain something. When we started the pandemic, you didn't even know what one of our leases looked like. You didn't even like, and, and now you do, because you've actually taken the time to educate and listen to us. But the, the reality is someone should have known that before the pandemic If you can believe this, we are an industry that employs 1.2 million people in a country of 35 million people. And we're responsible for what, four to 5% of the GDP and seven to 9% of the entire workforce of the nation. Yet we have no one in government whose full time job, not one single person whose full time job is to monitor the restaurant industry. Not one. To me, that is flabbergasting and it's borderline irresponsible. And I think that if, if they give half the resources towards the restaurant sector as they give to the automotive sector or the airline sector or, or farming or fisheries, you know, fisheries has its own minister, mm-hmm. yet they employ a small fraction of the amount of people that we employ and are responsible for a small fraction of the GDP we, we, we represent. So I understand there's an historical angle to this, but in the past 20 years, as the restaurant industry in this country has grown, the government has taken zero account of that growth and its influence in society. And in my my, uh, opinion, the restaurant industry has supplanted manufacturing as the fabric of working class society. We are the place where people come out of university and go and get their first job, become a professional before maybe they go on to do like their chosen career. We're the place where we take all the unwanted, all the uh, of the people who are hard to get an office job, and we train them, and we and we bring them in from zero training to say, you come in if you got the right attitude, you want to work hard, we will give you the skills to mm-hmm. succeed in this business, and you can make a good living. That is the difference between like entrepreneurship in corporate Canada. And I'll tell you this, I think that, uh, you know, if we even had a department of a ministry addressing our concerns, we would have had way more support than we have because we wouldn't have to spend six months explaining why we need things and who we are and, and why we're so vulnerable to the current economic climate. Interesting. Um, so in our opinion, we deserve a minister. We deserve a department that does research on us, that analyzes us and that understands us where we don't have to make phone calls and explain to them why our margins are 5%. And that would also shift a lot of public policy, especially when it comes to liquor taxes, labor laws, all those things, it, to, to create labor laws that are both fair for employees, but don't cripple business.
0: Well, very well said, and I guess um, it speaks also, you know, when I when I see a company like yours coming out, an advocacy group, um, it, it, it begs the question, are you working along with associations that are there to voice, you know, the concerns yes. of the industry or or on top of that? Is it separate? Is there um, a cohesiveness well, there
1: or not? Yeah, there is. We are very much aligned with many things that Restaurants Canada and the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and the Chamber of Commerce um, are fighting for. There's a lot of congruity there. Um, but there's a lot of things that we... Safe Hospitality existed because I didn't think we had a voice. Independent restaurants that are not chains, large corporations, or do massive numbers just didn't have a voice in government. Didn't have a voice in public policy. Didn't have a voice with the media. Um, and you know, I think that it's important that we create an organization. And you know, we're not we're not an organization right now. We're just a coalition of people who signed a document. That's all okay. we are. And and then, you know, I don't claim to represent the, the wishes or interests of, of the whole group at all. We are a disparate group with divided um, ideas, but we have one common goal, and that's survival at the moment. Um, so so uh, go ahead, the reason sorry. we exist is because Restaurants Canada at the time didn't represent small restaurants. Um, and now they're shifting, but they didn't at the time.
0: So you, you mentioned a key word there and that's survival. Um, we've heard a lot of statistics in the last few months that you know half of the country's restaurants are not going to be there at the end of this pandemic. Um, some of those numbers change on a daily basis depending on who you're talking to. Um, how do you feel about the survival of this industry now that we're going into the winter months? Uh, we have had some good news recently that vaccinations are being Worked on very quickly and, and may be out very soon. But what's your feeling going into the winter months um, with the survival of this industry?
1: It's super scary. Um, I think that uh, this is going to be the di- most difficult three months. You know, the first three months, everyone was in shock and kind of didn't know what to do and and could like if you had any cash reserves, you could dip into it. If you had any extra credit, you could dip into it. If you know, now all that money is spent. We've, we've all extended ourselves like beyond uh, uh, any reasonable amount. And, you know, um, the people who will survive, um, you know, I don't want to frame it as the people who are willing to shift or pivot and work hard will survive because everyone has different resources at their disposal. And there's a lot of restaurants who, Exist in a particular neighborhood, whether it's the financial district, who are the most hard hit out of any of us, and the people who are, you know, uh, don't have a huge staff, don't have a big management team, don't have resources or access to uh, more credit. Uh, For sometimes, it's the whether you survive or not this winter is a matter of pure circumstance, and that's the tragic part of it, and that's why the government needs to step up further and stop being so. Um, stop trying to like claim that they're supporting us and then create a program that diminishes that support uh, in as many ways as possible. Just step up and pay us the money we need to survive because trust me, keeping us in business is going to be cheaper than if we all go out of business. And we've been trying to make that economic case to the government for eight months to say, look, investing in us now creates a tax base for you moving forward and less people in unemployment and more money coming in for you down the road, just trust us, spend the money now to sur- sur- for our survival. We will pay you back that money in dividends later. Like we, like you will see that uh, in the economic performance of the country if we survive. Because if we don't survive... The knock-on effects are unimaginable. It, it, as a group, like you know, the, the the state of commercial real estate market will plummet. That is a problem. We are we are the, one of the biggest tenants of commercial re, street front commercial real estate in the country. Most people don't understand that that most of that street front commercial real estate is held either directly by retirees or by large um, real estate investment trusts that are owned by retirement funds, and Those funds, those those values will diminish too. So all those people around the country on fixed incomes are going to feel it if we go out of business and stop paying rent. And then you have the the horrible side effect of all of our employees who tend to be younger, more transient, renters living in downtown cores, more, uh, more at risk for alcohol and drug use, more at risk for mental health problems. All these people losing their jobs the effect on society is going to be massive it already has been massive but it's going to be even worse and i think that um, you know there if you have any foresight as a group of governments and i mean the municipal governments the provincial governments and the federal governments you understand right now that you need to keep restaurants alive and that means paying us to be closed Because we believe in the safety of society, but we mean you got to pay us to be closed so that we can rise again intact with our teams in place, ready to rock and roll when business is ready to be had and it's safe and people have a huge appetite for what we do, because otherwise, you know, you're going to have a society where the main streets are literally falling apart at the seams, where the real estate market is in a free fall and where the most at risk sector of society is jobless with and without financial stability
0: do you think that's going to happen john
1: i don't have a crystal ball i i have no idea i I really hope the government comes through with some sector specific support for restaurants that allows us to pay some old bills free up some cash flow and that they fix this calculator on the rent support so that we can actually pay our rent um, there will be more closures, for sure. Like we, the first call was a lot of people who were in financial distress already. And then there was a lot of restaurants who failed, like I explained, because of their circumstance, situation, you know, access to credit, access to resources, like depending on where they were located. And then um, now you're starting to see failures just on people's inability to deal with the stress any longer. They just can't put up with the insecurity the anxiety the not knowing what's next how much of my life i mean i had a restaurateur who's a good friend of mine say to me the other week he's like i have to now draw a line in my savings i'm close to retirement if i go any deeper into my savings it means i don't retire till i'm 80. he's like i have to say do i just shut this down and try to get a job next year for the next 10 years so that i can get to my retirement and, and lay off all my people at my two restaurants? Or do I take the risk to dip into that money that I've been saving for myself in the, in the hopes that maybe something will come back?
0: It's heartbreaking.
1: It's, it's really heartbreaking. heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking.
0: And, and now that uh, we're in this other lockdown, what are you doing in your restaurants? I mean, you're, are you still doing the takeout? Or are you, you obviously can't do patios anymore and uh, can't do in dining.
1: So what are you doing? Yeah, well, um, we have created a few different revenue streams. Um, So we opened an online store where we sell our uh, meal kits and pantry products and fresh pasta and frozen pizzas and frozen lasagnas, all that kind of stuff online. Uh, We also uh, sell that product through some of our suppliers who've Mm -hmm. turned into um, direct-to-consumer parties. So they've created websites of their own and there, we're creating a really great relationship with suppliers by selling food back to them that they can then sell to their customers in the 905 and suburbs. And then we um, are also have also created an events program through some corporate partners where we're uh, shipping meal kits and live Zoom experiences for their oh, wonderful clients and for their and for their um, staff, whether it be mixology demos or food demos. We've also done three or four course wine pairing dinners, direct to home with long instructional videos. It's a lot of work to make a fraction of the money. Um, But, uh, you know, you can see here, this is our wall of boxes. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's all for deliveries, pizzas, like whatever we're doing. Um, Like we have a lot of uh, uh, shipments that are going out in the next week. Um, so we're trying to do everything. Uh, we we have like in-store, uh, one of our locations has just become an in-store bottle shop where we sell prepared foods, wine, and beer, and spirits. And then, um, yeah. And, and like anything that we can do, if people ask us, can you do this? Our answer is yes. and we it out later how to do it.
0: Excellent. So John is a way to wrap up this podcast, because I know you're a very busy person and I don't want to keep you much longer. Um, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned through this pandemic?
1: Hmm. Uh, I think that we've learned the true meaning of the word resilience and that resilience is born out of believing in yourself, believing in your team and getting up in the morning, knowing that you're going to face some challenges that are very, very difficult, that together you'll be able to get through it. And, and we've, the creativity and immense amount of hard work by our staff has just shocked me on a daily basis, like in a good way. It's really amazing. It shows that when you build a team of quality people, it pays you back tenfold. And also the other thing we've learned, I think, is as a business over the years, we've always said, you know, good guys finish last. Like, we're always the guys to do the right thing, play by the rules, you know. Do the charity events, do and we've always somehow never ended up ahead. And I think it's been the reverse during the pandemic. Our community around our restaurants has come to support us in such an amazing way that I never thought would happen. That I didn't think it was possible, even like regular customers coming in once a week on the patio. Just they're like they're not even hungry. I don't think they're still coming <laughs> in for dinner. Like these people care about us so much, and we're so grateful. Um, to them, buying huge gift cards, sending it to their relatives, like uh, that support has been very humbling. And uh, so we've learned about like the people we serve as well as the the people we've hired to serve them. And we're very grateful to be in an industry um, like we are in where uh, really we treat each other like family.
0: That's really gratifying to hear that. Um, I I think people Uh, As you said, everybody wants to support restaurants because we can't imagine a society without restaurants. They're part of the fabric of this nation. So unfortunately, our time is up. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. You've really become an important voice over the last several months for restaurateurs. And you really have worked tirelessly to, um, to help the community come together to voice your frustration and your concerns. So I'm hoping that that will play out in the next little while with the government and they'll respond and in a stronger way, hopefully. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share your views and your expertise. And uh, I wish you all the best over the next few months as we hit the next stage in this pandemic. So um, thanks, Rosanna. It,
1: It was a pleasure and thanks for bringing a voice to our industry, we appreciate it.
0: Thank you, stay safe. You too. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.